This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. I'm Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Brian Kotick. And the three of us are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And the remaining 1% is the time we have to spend recording this intro every time because we don't know who's going to say their name in which order and then we (laughs) screw it up and we end up with bloopers. 1% delay. You guys, this is a very intense operation that requires a lot of grace and agility. That's the only part that we edit out every time (laughs) because we get it wrong. (laughs) Where in the world are you, Joel? Everyone is in London. I was just about to say to save us some time because I think that's the... Oh, again, sorry. I'm sorry. You're in Cambridge, of course. Technically not London yet. No, but yes, it's still in Cambridge, still in the UK. (laughs) You guys as well? Still in London? Still home. Joel, you'll be going back into the office a bit more though, now that the restrictions have lifted. Yes, I think so. I think at least twice a week, I'll start to go in uh, just because I like it and we are now allowed. Sadia, yeah. will you be going in more? I'll be going back in the office too. Um, not not every day, but yeah, some some days like, um, like Joel, I noticed that some, did I read in the news? I think it was Queen Emmanuel that said that they don't, they're not asking their associates to go back, you know, in the office ever. They don't really get to choose. Yeah. I saw that some firms are doing that. Yeah. I don't know if it's particularly for London or just like a general statement. Did you guys not read that? I saw that. It's really interesting that like you can work from home forever. Hmm, I've seen that in wow. other sectors, tech in particular. I think that's become a thing, but I kind of assumed that the, the legal sector being the legal sector would be slow to adapt to the change. Well, you see, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, to be honest. Kind of like you can just uh, hide behind your computer all day long. We don't care who you are. Just uh, produce results and deliverables, and that's it. I don't know how great that is, but anyway, more, more giving hours. you an option at least. Yeah, exactly. More hours. I I personally built more hours at home. last year than I have ever did in the last three years. Yeah, because there's no border between work and yeah because it never stops exactly you're just connected on your computer there's no interruption apart from when you there's no train ride yeah exactly or yeah we're just meeting people you know how you chat with people getting coffee or going to the toilet and stuff like that never happens you can do that at home too though right you do have toilets (laughs) in the house i don't chat i don't know no no okay Cambridge. Um, so different. guys, what are we talking about today? 
first, Brian is leaving us because he is a busy boy with a lot of construction arbitrations going on. So it's just you and I, Sadia, still talking. Busy bee. Talk about unity busy of investment, bee. right? You're going to be the resident Professor Schroyer. That's right. Um, based on, based on, of course, Professor Schroyer's position on this on this issue. But also because there was a conference recently where he spoke about the unity of investment. And uh, we all thought it was an interesting topic because it comes up in um, a lot of investment cases, came up in one of mine recently as well. And I uh, just wanted to talk about it, explain what it is and latest cases on this topic. This is great because it's something that I, you know, one of those things where you, you think you know something. But as soon as you think about it for more than five seconds, you realize you don't really. Like I have a general idea of what the concept is, but I don't know the key cases. Right. I don't know like the you know the basic framework of the concept as such. So I look forward to that. Great. And then it's interview time. And then we have an interview. Yes, uh, and we have an interview with uh, Jonathan Passaro, who's an executive coach. And Jonathan uh, used to be. Uh, an arbitration associate. He uh, actually first started in my firm at Jeed, and then he went to Freshfields. And he is a very interesting person to speak to. Brian and I had a good time interviewing him. Um, he's also a graduate from Harvard, Penn, Cambridge, just that. And all of this and all his wonderful arbitration experience. Um, uh, after after that, he he decided to become an executive coach. So we've got a lot of questions and you said for him. he did some training right as well yes. to, to get into absolutely that role. yeah 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 so he he's been when he quit his arbitration um position and one thing that i i forgot to mention is that yes he was an arbitration associate but after that he worked for um the oecd as well as legal counsel and it is after that that he quit his legal practice and had some specific training um, to become an executive coach, which uh, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure where it is, but then he um, he became one. So we'll, it's it's, it's going to be interesting to speak to him. Definitely. Then it's happy fun time. And you, it's one of those good happy fun times where you don't know what it is. And I will surprise you on air. The topic I might as well disclose now is... Um, how we talk about cases, what, what specifically, what kind of names do we give awards and cases in our field? Okay, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I'm intrigued to too. Be determined. The, yes. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but first, Brian, and through the magic of editing, you go do your work, and Sadi and I talk about the unity of the concept of investment. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, so Professor Schroer, who you know well, uh, delivered a keynote lecture at the 11th Investment Treaty Arbitration Conference last year. Even though it was last year, it wasn't actually that long ago. It was just about a month ago on 2nd of December. And it's the conference that's organized by the Czech Ministry of Finance. And you've, you, you were there, Joel. Uh, I wasn't there in person, but I watched it remotely. And I have been there probably three or four times before. I was there when Bob Dylan won the literature, the Nobel Prize. What? Because I only remember that because I got the news when I was in the, like, in the bathroom in between <laughs> sessions at, and I saw my phone and I yelled out in the like, men's bathroom, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> no one cared. And then I had to like walk out and be Swedish and ashamed. 
no one from this conference cared. No. Oh my gosh. Well. None of the four other men in the urinal. <sighs> well, I hope things have changed since. <laughs> But you know what these people care about, and I think that everyone would care about, is uh, what Professor Schwerk talked about, which is the doctrine of the unity of investment. Um, you must be all thinking, why, why are they talking about this? Has there been any recent changes to that doctrine? Is it new? Well, uh, let me answer this to you. No and no. I don't think there's been anything really drastically new about this. Uh, why am I talking about this is because I do think it's an important theory and in fact it was mentioned in the very first arbitral institution, uh, uh, arbitral award, ICSID award um, in the history of uh, investment arbitration which is, do you know what the oldest award is? Um, it depends a little bit on how we define, right? But it's treaty based, it's AAPL versus Sri Lanka no, it's not that one, no. No? Holiday Inn. Ah, oh yeah. It's <laughs> like, that contractual? This is such a long time ago that I was um, an academic. I think maybe that it is... It was such a long time ago that I don't think you were in the practice of law at the time. No. <laughs> I mean, it was like five, five years ago since I thought about things like history. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm Googling now as we speak. It is a contractual case, but oh, an God. exit case. It's the first exit case. But it's not the first a treaty based one. Okay. So when I said the first institutional arbitration, it's it's correct. It was the first exit arbitration, I guess. Uh, exit arbitration case. I will get to that in a moment. But why is it important? Um, when we talk about the unity of investment, of course, it's in investment arbitration, first of all. Sorry, all the commercial arbitration folks. Um, and we need to consider that when we think about whether or not there's an investment. So at the time of the assessment of the jurisdiction of the tribunal, because a reminder, we have to establish that there's an investment, an investor in the territory of the host state, depending on, of course, the terms of the treaty or the convention that is applicable to your, um, to your proceeding. Um, so it's the rationé matériel and when you assess whether or not there's an investment, you know, this all seems very theoretical, but in reality, an investment, and this is what Professor Schur reminded, is a very complex operation. And when I use the terms complex operation, they actually have been pronounced by a number of cases, this, this very expression. Um, so let's take, for example, uh, a construction project. Okay, so when you have a construction project in host state, X. Uh, you have, of course, you know, the preparatory studies that go with it, licenses, government permits, financing arrangements, which are the loan agreements, um, real estate transactions that go on with them, uh, and of course, uh, contractual arrangements, right? It could just be, you know, the construction project, of course, in itself could be the contract. Um, and our friends in projects finance deal with these kind of agreements all the time. And they're all very interconnected and interrelated. And each of these elements has its own legal existence, right? But they are united to serve a common purpose in economic terms. Um, and that's where this whole discussion came in because you have uh, often responding states that had argued, well, in order to demonstrate 
that there's an investment, you got to prove that each of these elements are investments. And in fact, when you look at item A, item B, it's just a regular ordinary commercial contract, not an investment, um, to which <laughs> claimants have argued, well, no, I, I need a loan for this project and I needed the government authorization and I needed that contract. And of course, if you look at the contracts in isolation, they might not constitute an investment under the definition of the relevant BIT or you know, and the exit convention. But if you look at the whole global project, and it actually could be several projects, it's just not one project right. sometimes, um, then it's, it's, a, it's an investment. Holistically, my friend. Exactly. If you look at it holistically. Now I see that you have, uh, like we say in French, tu m'as devancé. You're ahead of me, uh, Joel. I just wanted to get my favorite phrase in there. There are actually a lot of favorite phrases here. <laughs> so if you would allow me, I had made a little selection of stuff that says exactly the same, but that you see repeated over and over and over again in pleadings. And mea culpa, I've done that as well. <laughs> so... Uh, there's this expression, of course, uh, you've just did the holistic approach, but first let's see what Holiday in Morocco has said, because it's the first, like we said, the first, first, first um, exit um, award, and it's also the first then investment arbitration tribunal that have uh, dealt with this. And I quote, it is well known, and it is being particularly shown in the present case, that investment is accomplished by a number of juridical acts of all sorts. It would not be consonant either with economic reality or with the intention of the parties to consider each uh, portion of the investment in complete isolation mm -hmm. from one another. So you can't take them in complete isolation from one another. Note the term economic reality. Duke Energy. An investment typically consists of several interrelated economic activities, each of which should not be viewed in isolation. So here, again, they use the term interrelated economic activities. In Maris, Ukraine, it is not necessary to parse each component part of the overall transaction and examine whether each standing alone would satisfy the definition requirements of the BIT and exit convention. For purposes of tribunal's jurisdiction, it is sufficient that the transaction as a whole meets those requirements. I think this is my favorite, this one that I'm going to read out right now. So all of this means the same thing. I know, guys. <laughs> Just come on. Coke, Venezuela. It is thus not permissible to slice up an overall investment into its constituent parts like a sausage. Yes, they have used the term sausage. <laughs> I don't know how halal or haram that is Are for we going with those cake of us. Or some more obvious no, slicing. They have to go with sausage. <laughs> I don't know who the tribunal was in there. Maybe I should check. Probably some jewels looking at this right now. <laughs> so as to contend that one part Isolated by itself alone is not an investment, whereas an inter integrated part of the whole investment it is. And in French also we say socione, I think, socione, uh, or something, but I, I was just surprised with that, with that term here. Um, and, you know, of course, um, all of these cases, what they emphasize is that each element standing alone might not in all cases qualify as an investment, but if you look at them holistically, 
then it would qualify as an investment. And this specifically has been reminded by all the cases that I mentioned, but also CSOB Slovak Republic, sorry, SOAB Senegal, which calls it a unique operation, um, Nico Babax as well, uh, where the term holistic is used <laughs> also. Um, and, and so there's uh, different uh, cases that I can highlight. Uh, ones are, and I've mentioned them already, is when you have cases where they're separate contracts. So you have several contracts. Um, and, um, and the argument, like I mentioned, is that, you know, oh, they're ordinary commercial contracts. But in fact, when you look at them holistically, then they amount to an investment. So that's one, one case. Another one is when you have a variety of assets and activities, not just separate contracts, but really different kind of assets everywhere and activities going on. That was the case in Saipan, Bangladesh, for example. And here again, uh, the tribunal looks at the existence of the investment as, as like a, a whole activity interconnected with each other. In Holiday Inns, Morocco, um, it was the tribunal emphasized the general unity of an investment operation to assert its jurisdiction over the loan contracts. And here what's interesting to remind yourself is that you then extend the protection of investments to assets and activities that are actually ancillary or incidental to the mm. core investment activity itself. Because every time that you have little assets or activities like this, you always have like a core investment that you link it to. So you determine yeah. what is the main investment and then you have all these side operations. Implications of that. Well, we mentioned, of course, the existence of an investment, but more specifically, uh, consent to arbitration mm, is I was one. Just thinking about how the, oh, yeah? how to square like the arbitration clause and what it covers. What do you think that means then for the consent to arbitration? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have typically consented to to arbitrations concerning investments. Yeah, and it's a, for example, also if you have uh, a, like an arbitral clause in one contract. Yeah, in one contract, which is different. Yeah, we have, yeah, one that doesn't have an arbitration clause. You can have uh, several different instruments that are all supposed to then under, under this theory covered by the idea of an investment, but does that mean they're also covered by the consent to arbitration, all of them? I, I guess so. That would be the only like logical conclusion of this unity idea. Well, that's the conclusion of the unity doctrine. Yes, it should be. But then, you know, of course, then you can also argue otherwise, right? You can say, well, like the, it's all the umbrella clause issues, right? If you have different right. clauses. And, uh, but yes, in, in you have cases where the unity of the investment led the tribunals to conclude that consent to arbitration contained in some investment-related documents extended to legal relationships governed by other documents. Mm. So that's one thing. There's also an implication with respect to whether or not, and I mentioned it at the very beginning, the investment in the, is in the host state territory. Does that ring a bell to you, Jill? Like how that would also have an implication? Mm, not straight away in this. So we mentioned for the loan agreements, for example. Oh yeah. What if the loan agreements are not specifically or expressly? I don't know how to say it, but in the territory of right. the host state, right? They're disconnected. They're financial instruments. Yeah. Um, and so here you would have, you know, respondent state would argue, well, this cannot be part of the investment, uh, and which also, which I didn't mention, is like. It, the implications are also monetary, right? Because if you want to exclude an investment or a part, or 
of the project from the core investment that it also probably has a implication uh, at the end on the remedies and and of course on compensation on, compensa on compensation on whether or not there was breach if there was a substantial right. deprivation of property yeah. and so on and so forth so what so on the host state territory um, it's um, with respect to financial instruments like I mentioned the tribunals found that what matter was the and again I stress this term economic effect of the investment that was present in the host state territory so where the investment mm. consisted of, of, for example, and this is a specific case of pre-shipment inspections, the tribunals found that the services provided abroad were inseparable from the activity in the host state. So again, it's the, this concept of economic effect. I just mentioned that, I'm um, going to say it again, um, when you have to determine whether there's substantial deprivation of property. Uh, then tribunals have also relied on actually this um, on the unity of the investment to determine whether an alleged expropriation amounted to a substantial deprivation because they examined the impact of the expropriatory measures on the investment as a whole and not on its different parts. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, I'm saying this, but there's also cases where some tribunals have recognized the possibility of partial expropriations by looking at individual elements of investment to determine whether there was expropriation or not. So um, one other thing, because this is all in favor of, uh, you know, claimant, this theory, it seems, the flip side to it is illegality, hmm. because if you have one part of, it can't be just one part of the investment that's illegal. It's like the whole operation is illegal. So tribunals have used this concept to extend the consequences of illegality to the entire investment as well. So illegality that tainted one aspect of the investment oh, formation right, yeah. has the consequence of withdrawing protection from the entire investment. So you can't say, no, I only paid, you know, a million bucks for that contract <laughs> to be awarded to me um, it would necessarily um, it would I don't know if it's necessarily but it seems that it would have implications on the entire activities that are linked to so the idea goes both ways it goes both ways yeah um, and so if you can see from from you know cases and and you know if you, if, if you see the tribunal's reasoning in that you can see that, um, and this is also what Professor Schur emphasized, is the tribunals give precedence to economic realism over legal formalism. And that, I think, is, is probably a good conclusion to this. Is, you know, there's multiple other theories, I think, where they look at, um, at the economic reasoning versus what the law provides which could be a thesis in itself if it's not already written. <laughs> I feel like I've read, read things like this, not specifically on this, but in general, how, like especially in earlier cases and earlier commentaries, how the sort of financial economic perspective was much more prevalent than the mm -hmm. legal perspective on a, you know, a lot of policy stuff. You know, the early mm -hmm. people working on the tribunals, and there were academics and there was a lot of international like economic action people mm -hmm. world bank officials etc and this is very much like that you know that we have to understand an investment with recognition of how complicated that is to economists mm -hmm. we can't just construct little legal boxes that we put it in because that will be devoid of reality then obviously in other contexts we do we do exactly that we do like in yeah, <laughs> you just know. look at the text and only the text yeah. it doesn't matter if it's not in the 
it's a balancing act because then you should also look at the equilibrium of the contract in that sense you know but it, does it make sense economically for both parties to have you know um, you know <laughs> gotten into a, a treaty in that sense that there is these type of obligations for the investors and and uh, well, actually, there's no obligations for investors in, in the old generation of treaties. <laughs> so it, it's only getting to that is how far do you push that economic, you know, reasoning um, or not? Um, I think more so probably in it's it's interesting to see that. I think it's interesting to see that in treaty arbitration um, to have this economic discourse. Uh, yeah, and sort of, I mean. Discourse is a good word because it's also you know it's about narrative and how you mm. frame it, and I think this appeals to a lot of people because it's reality based, mm. and you can, or at least that's how you can spin it. You can try to argue that this is not devoid from reality. This is something that is top of mind and, and much more like it rhymes better with what people on the ground trying to figure this investment out would have thought about it. Mm -hmm. Which I mean, it's the opposite of the triple identity test and the fork in the road mm. causes where you you have to really. You know, it's it's a more legalistic approach yeah, typically point. to like we have you know this these are different parties but then mm -hmm. that would that's not what uh, a business person would think they would think but it's you know if you're same same structure and one company controls the other company yeah. can you really say they are distinct companies that, yeah. yeah but legally they are you know it's all exactly the whole debate on consent to arbitration right yeah. is also I mean we just mentioned it even if there are some examples where they say that consent extends to it it's 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 bizarre, you know, to an arbitration specialist, that, that theory, because it's, yeah, to what extent can you extend non-signatory parties to an yeah, agreement? Yeah, exactly, this a group a of whole, companies. Yeah, exactly, it's a whole separate debate. And here, if you take the economic perspective, then yeah, absolutely, right? Would you say, I'm, I'm not, I don't know, and I'm not sure that you know, uh, that this, this, what you have just told us and what Troyer has told us about the unity of investment, is this the, the dominant understanding Absolutely. Of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some tribunals that say that it's, uh, you know, generally recognized and it's uncontested. The, I've seen terms like this. Now, of course, challenge me. Tell me otherwise. <laughs> I think it, it very much depends case by case, I imagine, also to what extent, you know, right, yeah. you know, factually your project is constituted and whether it's linked or not. But um, yes, absolutely. I've seen it so many times. That's why I think I spend so much time reading over and over again these um, these references to, to decisions, but um, I, I think so. I think so. I stand corrected, of course. This is one of the like, areas where I think investment arbitration is amazing. Sometimes people criticize it for being mm. like, the same things over and over again, you know, mm. the same treaty standards, similar doctrines, but every investment really is unique. Yes. And there are so many things, like it's its own universe, and it's hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all Definition. It's the same as when we talk about the Cellini criteria as well. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to try to find some sort of common ground for what is an investment. And this is a good recognition that you kind of have to look at it and that, on the merits of each and every investment. That's actually a really good point because what it means is if you take the unity of investment, uh, you know, is that do you have to demonstrate the Cellini criteria for each and yeah. every element yeah, yeah. or do you do it for everything? <laughs> And so, in, and often what I've seen in cases is that, you know, of course, first of all, the Cellini criteria, there's a lot of discussion whether it applies or not. And, 
But most importantly, the discussion is whether or not it should be a tick box exercise. So say even if they apply right, and you have the element of risk, duration, uh, contribution, development to a host state, um, all of these elements come in, then you can just use your investment as a whole and say, well, there is a contribution of risk because I took, you know, these loans or I did this and that. And yeah. then there was a, um, you know, there was there was this additional elements of contribution to capital by doing this and that. But you were referring to another part of, of the investment that you did. And then in response, uh, the, the other side being <laughs> respondent state might argue, well, wait, what? Like, no, you need to apply the whole like four yeah. criteria for each and every of every constituent part that exactly. you're arguing is part of your investment has yeah, to meet yeah, yeah. the criteria yeah and so that is uh even though like i mentioned i've seen the unity of investment um being repeated over and over and over again i can tell you for, for a fact that this is a very life issue in in number of cases and it's still argued both ways uh so you always have you know the other side's defense will always be, hey, come on, you gotta, you, you, this is not the investment, or you have to demonstrate yeah, that yeah. this is part of the investment. Which is why it makes for such a good podcast segment. Voila, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Adia. Thank you. It's much better when Brian isn't here. <laughs> That's still in the tape. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, John. Uh, today we have a very interesting guest, and I'm going to give him the pleasure of introducing himself. So, John, tell us who you are and what do you do? So, my name is John Passaro. I am an executive coach, but I guess the relevance to the arbitration station is that I'm a former arbitration lawyer, and a lot of my clients also happen to be arbitration lawyers. So you were a former arbitration lawyer. Could you tell us where you worked before? Yep. So I actually started my career with you at Gide in Paris. <laughs> I was actually <laughs> thinking this morning how I actually slept on your couch the night before my first day at work because I was oh struggling to find a department in Paris and you and your husband kindly took me in. So yeah, so I started at Gide and then after that I moved to Freshfields. And then I ultimately moved in-house at the OECD. Um, so I worked there as an in-house lawyer for about seven years. So I was a total lawyer for about 10 years and then decided to become an executive coach. And so, John, can you explain to us, um, first of all, maybe what is an executive coach? Like, just what does it mean? And then maybe <laughs> you, can, you can explain to us also why you decided to move and become an executive coach. Yeah. So coaching is basically helping individuals and teams to think in a structured way about the way that they work in order to improve their performance and increase their well-being. So basically what that means is I partner with people in order to um, help them figure out how to work better, get more out of their work and uh, advance uh, in their careers the way they want to. Um, that involves me really... Um, acting almost like a lawyer for my clients in the sense of um, asking them really tough questions to make sure that they're analyzing whatever problems they're facing in the most complete and rigorous way possible so that they can figure out the most effective way to solve the problems that they're facing. 
Right. And so when you say executive, so in, in terms of executive coaching in that sense, then it applies to everyone. It's not just lawyers, right? So is, is your practice focused on lawyers or do you do other, other practices like other, other people working in businesses? Yes. The majority of my clients are lawyers. I mean, that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, my network. And second mm-hmm. of all, uh, people feel comfortable working with me if they're a lawyer because I understand their world. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's something like arbitration, it's really specific. So people like working with someone who sort of gets it. But I also work with a lot of international civil servants by virtue of the fact that I worked at the OECD. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's partly based on my background, partly based on my network. And then I have a handful of other clients as well that are in other industries. So I have a, um, you know, for example, a client who's a, uh, a doctor at a major hospital in New York. Who's oh. in charge of? Yeah, who's in charge of? Um, uh, she sort of manages a number of of doctors and, and works with uh, integrating a couple of different practice groups, and so helping her work through this through those issues. But so so you know, it's these sort of there's a lot of overlap in terms of what the different issues are because at the end of the day, people anyone who's in a kind of really high pressure high profile job are often struggling with some of the same things, uh, competing demands from a lot of different angles. Um, the sort of pressure we put on ourselves as well to be really high performers, the standards mm-hmm. we hold ourselves to, um, sometimes more basic things, just how to be organized, um, how to avoid things like procrastination, um, mm-hmm. how to delegate to people. But but again, the majority of my clients are are lawyers. And so are, um, you, you mentioned that a lot of them were arbitration lawyers without, of course, uh, violating any of your confidentiality agreements <laughs> with them. Could you tell us what kind of issues do they come to and how have you been able to help them? So I would say that a, a major issue that comes up for lawyers, but, but also, again, really for anyone who's in kind of um, a high profile profession is imposter syndrome. So something that I hear over and over again from from clients who are lawyers is, oh, you know, I need to put in so many more hours than my colleagues because I'm less efficient, or I need to work so much more, so much harder to get the same outfit output because my colleagues are so much more talented. Um, My guess based on the prevalence of those statements is that all of their colleagues are probably saying the same thing. Um, (laughs) So, so that's a big one. And that's, I think a lot has to do with, I, I think it has to do with sort of two things. I mean, one is the the kind of people who are attracted to the legal profession, you know, people who are really driven, hold themselves to really high standards, but also the law firm environment as well. And mm. the kind of image that we have of of the ideal lawyer, right? You know, so one of the refrains that I heard over and over again at one of the law firms I worked at was our standard is perfection. And I think that that's something that's that a lot of people here at the law firms they work for, mm-hmm. but it's really unhealthy in a lot of ways, right? Because obviously the standard of perfection is unattainable, and yet everybody's sort of led to believe that um, that's what they have to fulfill, mm-hmm. um, and so everybody's sort of walking around these law firms, sort of pretending that okay, yes, you know, I'm 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 the perfect lawyer, I'm handling everything perfectly, and that leads to a lot of difficulty because you it's a lot of effort to sort of put up that facade but then also you know we think that all of our colleagues are sort of handling things okay and then so that can lead to this feeling of imposter syndrome like oh everybody else seems to have it together um and so i don't so so that's a pretty common issue um this, i raised was this uh, like a a seed that grew over time that while you were working you saw this 
void that needed to be filled. You're saying a lot of people are saying the same thing and no one knows where to turn. And then it kind of, the wheels started turning in your mind over time, or was this a decision later on in your career to say, what do I do now? Oh, I've just thought of this idea. No. I mean, so I I think like every young lawyer, um, you know, when I was a young lawyer at, at my firm, I really sort of did believe this, right? I was like, oh, everybody else really, you know, has it together. And maybe I'm just the one who, who doubts my capacities every once in a while, or, you know, maybe I just sort of ended up here by, by luck or whatever. Um, my decision to go into coaching came much later. I mean, it was really, um, you know, basically after I'd been at the OECD for several years, I, I started to get a little bit bored. I'd kind of thought that I'd done the rounds a little bit. Um, I also got French nationality, which, which played into it in the sense that it gave me a little bit more freedom. And so I kind of allowed myself to start thinking about what I kind of really wanted to do long-term. What you're but- saying is you became French and you became critical in your thinking. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but um, <laughs> um, basically what I, I just started to think about what I really liked about my job and what I didn't. And what I really liked about my job was uh, critical thinking, problem solving, having to think on my feet and also partnering with my clients. So what I really loved were those moments when someone picked up the phone and said, "Ugh, like this thing just happened. Um, what are we going to do? And I was able to say, don't worry about it. I've got it under control. We'll figure it out together. Um, what I didn't really like was the kind of constant conflict, right? Because especially as a disputes lawyer, we always sort of take on this mentality. It's really hard to lose that mentality of someone's right, someone's wrong. And so I think that that leads to a lot of kind of difficult relationships uh, with colleagues. And that just kind of wore me down after a while. Um, and so, I mean, it took me a while to figure out that the coaching is really what I wanted to do. But, you know, after a couple of years, I kind of figured out that I'd found it. So, so that's how I got there. But, um, but Brian, I guess to maybe tie that back into your question, one thing I guess that I'd also realized about working with people in general is that people do expend a lot of energy to kind of put up a facade because people are afraid of kind of admitting to colleagues when they maybe aren't so sure of themselves or they maybe have some sort of weakness somewhere. And that's sort of pretty exhausting <laughs> in general. And I noticed that it created a lot of stress with people. I could kind of tell when people were really tense and you know, you kind of just wanted to be able to break through that barrier, but you really couldn't. The thing that I really love about my job now is that I'm in an environment where um, people are totally honest with me right from day one. There's not that kind of barrier in between us. And so that to me is, um, it's a lot easier to work with, working on that kind of, um, with that level of honesty and openness. But do they listen to you? I feel like I've informally coached some colleagues when they're like, I'm going to burn out. I'm going to have a burnout. And I'm like, just take a break, go around the block. It's like, no, I have to keep going. I have to, it, this is what has to be done. So I'm wondering when they do have that moment of vulnerability, do they just inevitably snap back into their into their habits because of the pressure? Well, I'm, I'm glad you phrased the question that way, because this is one of the common misconceptions about coaching is that coaches don't give advice. So I don't tell you what to do. What I do do is I really partner with you to help you figure out what's going to work for you. So I help you to kind of come to that realization. Um, I mean, it works differently for different people, but but often what people find really helpful is um, just sort of hearing what they say phrased in a different way. So saying like, okay, look, here's what you said. This is what I understood. Um, Or even sometimes uh, just hearing themselves 
sort of say something out loud, they realize that, okay, what I'm saying right now is crazy or, or that doesn't really make sense. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, this question of, you know, do they just sort of snap back afterwards? I mean, change is, um, is a really slow process. It doesn't just happen overnight, but, uh, you know, already when someone comes to coaching, that's a sign that they're, they've kind of acknowledged that there's some sort of goal that they want to accomplish. There's some sort of change they want to affect. Um, and then within the context of coaching, it gives them the opportunity to, in a focused and structured way, figure out, okay, sort of identify what's going well, what isn't going well, how do I do more of what's going well, um, and what can I change so that um, things that aren't going well um, slowly disappear. And you mentioned um, you mentioned imposter uh, imposter syndrome and any any other big issues that people come to you. Uh, Brian said burnout, <laughs> that I think is linked with a lot of other issues. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point. I mean burnout is is a really big one, and that's um I mean that's a really yeah can can be a really um, delicate situation as well. I think that uh, when someone is facing burnout. Um, you know, it's, there are a lot of sort of smaller issues that you need to deal with in order to try to make sure that someone um, doesn't actually get there. Um, a, a big issue with law firms is that there is oftentimes not that, not that much training done for kind of basic management skills. Mm -hmm. And so as people increase in seniority, they really need to work on things like, like delegation. Um, and so coaching can be really helpful for uh, helping people who are, so, you know, one of the sort of main groups of people of lawyers who come to me are people who have either just gotten a promotion or who are trying to get a promotion, right? And so it's about that question of, okay, what do I need to do to kind of get to the next level? You know, I'm a senior associate and I'm gearing for partner. How do I make that transition happen? Um, and uh, so learning things like delegation and how to delegate effectively are really important for, um, you know, preventing burnout, dealing with dealing with stress, um, being able to just manage a, a workload. Um, so, you know, with delegation, it can be just things like learning how to let go, right? Because as, as lawyers, we, we all, most of us have this desire to be in control of things. You know, we like the law because it's structured and, you know, we can sort of get to a right answer. And um, so delegating can be a challenge, right? If you're, you're used to always kind of wanting to have your work be perfect and, and the way that you've always done it giving a big chunk of work to a junior colleague can be stressful and it can be difficult for people to do that. It's interesting that you're saying all of this, John, because um, what I hear is there's issues in, in the people that come to you and how they, you know, feel like you talked about imposter syndrome, you talked about burnout, you talked about, you know, delegating work and so on and so forth. But how do you deal with an issue when it comes externally when it comes from the institution from the firm i mean would you would you recommend coaching the managers of the firm to to change i mean is that something that you do as well or it, or are you training people to um you know react in that environment in a in a better way an environment they cannot change or cannot control well that's a really excellent question because i think uh one really difficult thing for a lot of people is accepting that they can't really change the environment that they're in, mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you can't really change the legal profession and that there are a lot of things about 
being a lawyer that are, that are just really difficult. And so, but it's about accepting that and acknowledging that and then figuring out, okay, what do I have to do in order to be able to deal with this as effectively as possible? You know, what are the resources that I have that I can draw upon in order to be able to thrive as much as possible in this environment? Hmm. And um, is there, because you, obviously you, you mentioned that you worked a couple of years in, in, um, in the big law firms. Uh, mm-hmm. You also worked in a legal department of, uh, of an international organization. You went through this. So what advice would you give yourself now if, if that's not too much of a corny question? Like, what do you, you know, what, what would you have done differently maybe to deal with things differently at the time? So absolutely, the thing that I would have done differently is instead of just sort of focusing on my day-to-day work or hour-to-hour work and plugging along, mm-hmm. I would have taken more time to sort of step back and think in a structured way about, okay, you know, what is it that I really need to work on? What is it that, that I could be doing better? You know, I think I, I, like many people, have this tendency to wanted to sort of avoid thinking about, okay, ugh, there's this thing that I really know I need to work on, but look, I'll, I'll deal with it later. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it when, when I have a little bit of time, when I'm a little bit less stressed out. I think I would have probably been a lot more happy and satisfied in the long run if I had just taken a little bit more time and said like, okay, look, yeah, maybe it's uncomfortable to think about this thing that I don't want to work on that I feel like is a weakness of mine. But if I just put in a little time and effort to address it, then I'll probably feel a lot better and also will probably be a lot more efficient. I have, we discussed before the, before you actually joined Saudi, before we started recording, and we can delete this if you find it too sensitive, but that you were in a, you were in a firm and left quite soon thereafter because you felt that the dynamic of the team was not as it was when you had initially decided to join the firm and therefore you made the decision to leave. And I, mm-hmm. my response to you was that was brave, I think I said. And I think, so I, it's probably something inherent in you and that probably makes you a good coach is that the agility, the career agility, I think for lawyers, we find ourselves in such strict hierarchies and such a strict path to success that we often find that there is no other way except to just dig your head down and and it is my fault and I do have to improve on my weaknesses and I do have to continue instead of saying, wait a second, this actually doesn't work for me. Maybe there's something else that can that I can change to do that. So I think it, it's um it is a different you you have to kind of flip the camera a bit, I guess. Um and I, I, I think it's very particular of our industry that it doesn't allow us or we don't think that we can do that or that it wouldn't breed success. Um, I don't know if you've, you've noticed certain people kind of unable to make those career agile decisions. Well, I guess, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, you know, I would never advocate someone taking the sort of the nuclear solution that I did, which was to totally change careers because you're unhappy. You know, I think that for 90% of people, you can engineer your job to make it really work for you. Um, I think that maybe what I was really lucky with and, and, and what really allowed me to kind of make these decisions that, that maybe seemed a little bit radical was that I was always really clear about my vision of success and what was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And my whole sort of life trajectory was was me making somewhat unusual decisions 
because it really felt right. And so my whole thought was, you know, so I grew up in the U.S., um, but I decided that I wanted to to move to France for for a number of reasons. Um, I made that happen. Um, that was a pretty huge move that a lot of people didn't understand. Like, oh, John, you know, why would you, you know, you you work so hard in law school? Why would you move to a place where you're going to get paid a fraction of what you would get paid if you moved to New York? Um, and but but I don't know. For, for me, that was a really important part of my life. And so part of my sort of measuring success wasn't sort of just, okay, am I going to be a great arbitration lawyer, but also am I going to uh, become fluent in French really quickly? Am I going Mm -hmm. to become fully integrated in French society? So I always had a lot of different yardsticks there. And I was also just, you know, really lucky in the sense that I, I was blessed with a lot of um, self-confidence and also had a really strong uh, support network, a, a lot of really wonderful friends, including Sadia. Um, and so all of that, I think, really helped me to um, have a really strong sense of who I was. And one thing that I noticed that a lot of people struggle with, and particularly a lot of lawyers, is um, is this kind of fear of judgment or this holding themselves up to external standards. And so people are very, for reasons that are very understandable, worried about what other people think. Um, and so when you let that kind of become a lot more important than what's really important to you, then that can lead you down a really dangerous path where you're doing things just because you think that that's what other people are going to value. Mm. Um, And that's, you know, that's, you know, a lot of the work that I do with clients is really helping them figure out what's important to them, you know, like what motivates them. And so that, you know, instead of leading to radical decisions about, okay, I'm going to completely change tracks or I'm going to, you know, move to a new firm or something like that, it often just helps them figure out, okay, what are the things that I really want to focus on in my job that are going to be rewarding for me and going to help me thrive? And what do I want to focus on a little bit less that, you know, either I'm not that interested in or maybe I know aren't my strong points. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, people are working on a team, right? So there's going to be someone else who's going to compensate for your weaknesses or, or that is going to want to do the work that, that you don't find as interesting. Um, so ultimately that kind of leads to more success for everyone. Yeah, I think you're right. The move, people often think that I'm not happy here. I'm just going to move firms, not thinking that it's the exact same format and structure and probably going to be the same outcome. Uh, so it is probably about finding what makes you tick? Yeah, we always think that grass is greener on the other side, right? <laughs> we always do that. <laughs> How many times have I heard it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. When I hear you speak, John, I, I can't help but think why aren't law firms providing this service to all of their, you know, associates? Because it's in their interest to have associates that thrive in the business. Um, is, is that something that you have seen exist in other um, other businesses and not in firms. And is, is please tell us that this is going to change it, that you have been contacted by firms and <laughs> that you're offering your services to law firms as opposed to just individuals. Yeah. So, so, so more and more firms are doing this. So um, it's, it's much more prevalent um, in the U S um, I suspect mm-hmm. it's probably more prevalent in the UK as well. It, it's starting to become more of a common thing um, in uh, in in Western Europe, in France. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's crucial to a lot of, um, you know, uh, d- 
development of, of associates at, at a number of levels, but particularly for more senior associates, right, who, again, are maybe preparing to make that transition to counsel or partnership. Um, and it's a good opportunity for them to reflect on their career to date and then figure out how to bring things to the next level. But also management down. I find it like you mentioned that. And I, I still I, I've always thought of this from the beginning, how bizarre it is that you have people leading often large teams with zero, zero management experience. Hmm. I mean, we, we go from law school where we have your head in your books, you have your head in your papers. And then 10 years later, you wake up and you have to run a team and manage personalities and dynamics and find strengths in certain participants and and compensate for weaknesses of others and celebrate uh, diversity and cognitive diversity. And uh, there's no built-in mechanism to learn that. And yet you're expected to follow these leaders. Yeah. And also like one thing that you skipped, Brian, is like you also work for 10 or how many years before you get a management kind of role in a firm where you are not doing any of those things at all. (laughs) You're just billing hours not speaking to people about those issues. Now only, I mean, now we see all these webinars and discussions and so on about diversity and inclusion and well-being. And because of, I think also COVID uh, played a big role in, in talking about well-being. Um, but, you know, and, and it, this is the nature of the beast is we work, we work, we work. And then one day they're like, oh, you're going to be in charge of that team. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do I? But but yeah. it's it's not only that, right? I mean, the problem is is deeper than that, right? Because yeah, not only is there this often sudden transition from, you know, yeah, just being sort of a, a rank and file associate to you're managing a team, but there's also all the work as well. And you have very little time to actually mm-hmm. be able to uh, take the time and sit back and think about uh what you need to do as a manager. So for example, I actually just got off um, my, my previous meeting was with a partner at a law firm and a lot of the benefit for him in coaching is having an hour once every couple of weeks where he shuts the door and everything else kind of recedes into the background. And he just has time to be able to think things through in a calm way. And I'm there to be his sounding board and thinking partner and that's his opportunity to work things through and figure out you know, what his priorities are for his associates and how he can use them most effectively and develop them effectively and, and delegate them in an effective manner. Hmm. That's fantastic that someone's doing it. <laughs> yeah, it is great. And um, so how do people get in touch with you, John? I'm sure people are going to be like, what? what? Why have I not do this before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I, I have a website. Um, it's www.passaro-coaching.com. So my surname is P-A-S-S-A-R-O, or you can just Google me, John Passaro. I'm pretty easy to find. We'll put, we'll put the link in the, in the, under the recording. Um, do you have any last, um, maybe one big tip that you want to share with our listeners before we log off? Yeah, I guess I guess my one sort of big piece of advice for everyone is that they shouldn't be afraid to ask for help, um, and that's for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, the you know the story of the self-made man or the self-made woman is a total myth, and anyone who has achieved great things has done so because they have a really strong team and a really strong network behind them, and a lot of people think that they are supposed to do everything on their own, but again, it doesn't really happen. 
And there's no merit- meritocracy. Are you saying that really? As an American? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can't believe I'm hearing this. <laughs> but I think there's, you know, there's this sort of misperception that asking for help is a sign of weakness when in fact it's a sign of strength, right? Because it demonstrates that you have the wisdom to be able to distinguish between what your strengths are and what you need a little bit more help with. It also demonstrates that you have a network that you can reach out to. And the fact of the matter is when you ask for help from someone, it's also an opportunity to improve your own skill set because chances are they're not just going to do it for you, but they're going to teach you how to do it, or at least give you the skills to be able to do something a little bit more effectively next time. And also the person that you're asking for help is, um, is probably going to benefit from it as well, because they're probably going to feel good about it. And I mean, I think that's particularly relevant to the arbitration community. And, and what I really loved about international arbitration and what and why I'm really happy kind of being back into the fold, working with a lot of arbitration lawyers is that it's really tight knit. And there are so many people out there who, um, you know, it, it sort of feels like in a lot of ways, everybody kind of knows each other. And so people are really willing to kind of reach out and, and help each other. And I think that people should take advantage of that. I guess they should just make sure they're not reaching out to opposing counsel when they do that. But <laughs> <laughs> We're great. Well, thank you very much, John. This was very, um, very insightful. It's, it's good for us also to pause and think about those things. And uh, we're grateful for the time that you spent on the arbitration station today. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, this is true happy fun time, academic style. This is something I started thinking about when I wrote my dissertation, because I wrote about set-aside judgments a lot. And there's obviously no unified way of describing a court case. Every jurisdiction has its own way. Like, How do you refer to a court case? It's typically some variation of like claimant's name versus respondent's name, but then there's also... You know, it might be written in some official publication, so it has a number, uh, it might be tied to the year, it might be a page number in a printed whatever, and it's all very, very confusing. Like how do you refer to a domestic court judgment in an international arbitration? That always annoyed me a little bit. And in Sweden, it's uh, very annoying because in Sweden, they put all the Supreme Court decisions in one big publication, which is shortened as NJA. And then it's just NGA, year number, and then the page number in that book, which doesn't say anything. So it's, if you're like a, an autistic law student in Sweden, it's a game to try to memorize. Like NGA, 1982, page 59. Oh, that's that case. You need uh, to memorize uh, all those things. I know, and that's so uh, annoying. Like, that doesn't help anyone. And the Swedish Supreme Court is what made me think about this in our present context, because they have now started to change that in Sweden. The Swedish Supreme Court has now, going forward and retroactively, started giving shorthand names for cases so that you can remember the cases. So instead of being NGA 1982, uh, page 59, there's now a PDF on the Swedish Supreme Court page where you can go and look at a table what that case is now called. So every case with a precedent now has an unofficial name so that you can talk about it in a way that makes sense which is so goddamn nice. And the name <laughs> Wait, give us something. an example of one of oh, these yeah, yeah. Uh, names. One, you're going to get a lot of them because they all sound like legal thrillers slash crime movies. You're getting more than one example, Brian. 
Okay. I'll read out a few and just like my translation from Swedish to English. So these are Supreme Court cases, the official way they are now referred to in law school and in pleadings and in other cases in Sweden. We have the moose hunt, the circumcision. What? The 40-year <laughs> lease. What? <laughs> Shots fired in the bathroom. <laughs> Is that Oscar Pistorius or what? <laughs> it's it's in some version of that in a Swedish criminal case. We have that's uh, hilarious. The apple throwing. We have uh, the secret compartments one and two. There are two cases oh, like called apple. the secret compartments. Right? It sounds like a what? young adult novel. That's amazing. Yes. Three glasses of liquor? Question mark. Very unclear. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the cockroaches the gift to the grandmother <laughs> so wait joke sorry excuse me is this official like these are it's, the official names yeah, of the I'm, cases? Like, I'm translating in my head but i'm reading off of a pdf of the swedish supreme court website which is about a year old they are doing this now That's... so whenever they have a new case they also have to like i don't know how maybe it's an admin person maybe it's the judges but they have to decide on the official like shorthand shortcut name of every case that's published by the supreme court i mean and it's so much better than the generic name number thing yes it's better than generic name number but it's like it sounds like you're naming friends episodes this is not exactly like <laughs> like the cockroaches the, like yeah I'm, and, imagine and, pleading that on page 22 of the cockroaches <laughs> exactly that's my and point as though. the holding was in three bottles question mark it's like come yeah ex- exactly how do you <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, I think p- p- they're excited now. And you said they're going to do it retroactively for every single case. I-, I doubt every case has like a punchline like this. Some of them. Right? Are, that's the point. That's a good point, because some of them are basically just the the corporate identity of one of the parties. Which is boring and is also the default in our field. And that's my point, that we are so much more boring. Can you uh, agree with me on this? Yes. Some cases, I think yes. Yeah. I say yes or no. I mean, some cases are a bit juicy, you know, and some of them are just like. But not the names. Violation of have, And we also have, you know, we have so many repeat claimants. We have the the Vivendis and the Salinis and the SGSs and the Cargills and the Mikulas and the EDFs. Mm -hmm. There are so many cases that are just like the same claimant's name. Uh, so I will, you know, in all non-seriousness, because I understand there's a reason why this is how we talk about arbitral awards, but I want to propose that we retroactively, collectively agree <laughs> to rename arbitral um, awards the same way that the Swedish Supreme Court has renamed Swedish Supreme Court cases. Are you, should we, are you game? <laughs> oh, let's oh, try. We're going to do, okay, okay. <laughs> we're going to do it live. Okay, I, let's I, try. I think, Brian, you worked for a while on the nuclear face-out case, no? Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. You also work. I object to that, that one. I don't. I don't R- think that's gonna work. Soda factories, Romanian beer factories, whatever that was, or Mikula one as yeah. the layman would I have would it. Co- that would be well. Yeah, Mikula one would have been the incentives, but yeah, the incentives. But Mikula two would be more interesting. That would be like the black mark, the the black market of alcohol case. Oh. That's a better name than Mikula too, no? (laughs) (laughs) There are other cases that are the black market of, no? Yeah, I mean, of alcohol, no? 
No, okay. Maybe not. The phasing out, the nuclear phase out phase, there are multiple cases, unfortunately, of this. No? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I we, we start better. to get into trouble when we're talking about like renewable cases in Spain. It's kind of hard to find That's right. good yeah. names for like, 32 different cases if we're not using the name of the claimant to keep them apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the ICJ sometimes does this. I don't know if you thought about that. And I think that's probably because they have a much more limited pool of party names because in the ICJ is always state versus state. So you can't say, mm-hmm. you know, oh, United States versus Iran or Costa Rica versus Nicaragua. Because like, which, which one? There are many of mm-hmm. all of those cases. Yeah. But the ICJ, they add, it's not really like a Friends or Seinfeld episode, uh, but they do give informal case names like, you know, certain properties X or maritime delimitation X or whatever. Like, it's not as good though. It's boring, I think. So you want it to be as equally thriller as the Swedish Supreme Court? Yes, I do. And we obviously can't do it. You, you don't have the imagination. You're not buying this. <laughs> Maybe we should make a call no. to the world of arbitration. Let's try. I mean, what would you call, uh, what would you call Acmea? Mm-hmm. That's an easy one. The dumpster fire case. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's it's actually for... a good way though, because then when Acmea shows up in you know in in the European Court of Justice, it would probably only be Acmea. But then you could easily distinguish Acmea as before the Court of Justice, where it would still be called mm-hmm. Acmea, from the original Acmea Arbitral Award, which would be Slovakian Medical Insurance, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. Oh, that because sounds so nice. could benefit from that. These name differentials as well. I think there's also this, yeah. is, this is the the academic in me talking, but I think there's also something about the the narrative framing of this field when we name so many important principles based on like Fortune 500 companies, basically, like the the jurisprudence. Mm. We have all these cases, disputes concerning issues of public concern that are named after major companies. It makes it feel like it's I don't know. You could argue at least that it's you know corporate justice or whatever critics of the system would call it. Because it's the way we think about this. We don't think about it as Costa Rica versus Nicaragua as we would in ICJ. We think of it as Fortune 500 company X versus a company. And that leads mm. to a doctrine that we then, it's like branding. We keep using, like, I'm, Salini has changed name now, I think, but they must be really upset with how the Salini criteria is like a major thing in investment arbitration. <laughs> That's a good point. Mm. I'm trying to think what other principles we have with. Uh... Oh gosh, what's the dual national? That's ICJ, um, though, isn't it? That's not the boom. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But we use that's that. Awesome. Maybe, maybe we don't have that many principles. Actually, maybe I'm making something out of nothing. But the problem is, is like in treaty. So in commercial cases, there, I don't know if they're that. Int- I mean, maybe they are. There must be some interesting commercial cases as well. Of course, they could have good names. I can't think right now on top of my head uh, about one. But the treaty cases. They're often the same issues, aren't they? So it's hard to distinguish like uh, something that would be really specific to that one case. I guess you could say the cigarettes issue, like for the Philip Morris one. I don't we, know. We talk about them as the plain but packaging cases. cases. I mean, that would, plain packaging case. But yeah, right, plain packaging one cases. against yeah. Australia, one against Uruguay. I mean, that's also, with when the Swedish Supreme Court, like most Supreme Courts, they only look at specific legal issues that have been isolated from the lower courts where there's a need for some sort of direction from a higher court. So they basically typically have one legal question on their table, whereas an, an, an arbitration obviously 
has a gazillion different issues. So it's kind of hard to isolate the mm -hmm. one thing you can use to distinguish the name. But it seems like they're going off subject matter versus, versus actual legal principles now. Yes, that is true. Sometimes, I mean, you read Swedish, Brian, I'll send you this. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases in a big PDF, just changing names on cases. Some of them are legal. That's so funny. Which is, and some of them, are, a lot of them are actually tied to like small towns in Sweden, like the, the horse in Westeros or something like that, or the, <laughs> the car in Borås. <laughs> right. <laughs> But you know what? I mean, going back to having corporate names being included in case names, I think there's something subconscious in my head. If you read an investment case where it's an individual claimant or mm. a company that you don't immediately recognize the brand, that it's for some reason not equally persuasive, not as persuasive or, for, you know, it's like if, if you have a ExxonMobil or a, you know, Shell case, you kind of bring with it some sort of pondus uh, versus if you have like, I don't know, like Al-Hassan Incorporated LLC and then you're well, like, well, it's, it's branding, isn't it? It's like the residual yeah. power of branding. A good brand subconsciously or you're bound to remember or associate with something where something mm. you hear for the first time is not going to stick the same way. Yeah, exactly. When we're talking about that, how well, do you feel yeah. about this strange practice or not strange, but unusual that I see sometimes that when you cite cases, you put the names of the arbitrators within parentheses to identify the tribunal. I see that in some pleadings and I, I haven't made up mm -hmm. my mind if I think that's a good or a bad thing. Do you have an opinion? I had to do that in my previous employment um, for one partner. They specifically, and I, I think it has to do with actually your your legal education background or your experience where that comes from and why they would include that because of the, you know, importance that's placed on the adjudicator. I find it a bit, uh, making arbitration sexy, uh, type of argument where it's, we're really placing as if that's going to influence our opinions on the legal analysis or whether we should, because Alexi Moore said that I should give it more weight than someone who's mm -hmm. a first time arbitrator when, in fact, you should really take it on an objective basis. But that was actually what exactly what I was going to say with reading cases with big names or or names that are not immediately recognizable. You could go to the arbitrator's names to see if it was actually something that was. But that, yeah, I, I too am on the fence. I, I can see both sides. I don't know, Sadia, what do you think? Yeah, I when I saw this, I was equal, equally surprised. Um, but and and I thought the reason why. Um, the other side was doing this was also just to pinpoint that certain cases were that they were referring to <laughs> had arbitrators that were sitting in the same um, mm, case, of yeah. course, um, that makes sense. In, the, in the present instances. So you just wanted to flag, you know, you're not going to say as uh, members of the tribunals have decided in previous cases, you know, you're not going to write it so obviously, but in your footnote, you just refer to um to them by by name in parentheses. So I thought that's why they were doing it. And then I, on the weight point, I think definitely, Brian, don't they look at, you know, who rendered the awards now? I'm sure. I mean, maybe, Jill, you know that because you work in arbitration chambers and if you can share, but um, of course, all awards should have the same weight. But there's also this doctrine in treaty arbitration. There is no precedence in, in treaty arbitration, right? And so... Uh, but we here we are always referring back to um, treaty awards and are all awards equal? 
I guess mm-hmm. that could yeah, be another topic. It's another. <laughs> yeah. I think about that a lot because we're also operating with imperfect information so much in this field. It's not like we have a Supreme Court. We have a lot of cases, and I, I've seen that cited uh, in, in in my practice and also in like things that are published, where you cite to an award without having access to the award. You know who was on the tribunal. You know what the outcome was, and there's a report in GAR or I a reporter of the like the broad, you know, the tribunal found X, Y, or Z, but you don't have the actual award to refer to. Mm-hmm. So you just make, you know, as, as the tribunal found, and then that's basically all you can say, but you're still relying on it because it proves your point. And maybe because the, the tribunal is a distinguished tribunal and whatnot, but you're not able to cite to the thing. Because I think that, I mean, the right answer as far as I'm concerned is that it, it's the persuasiveness of, of the award. They're not all the same. And it doesn't matter who wrote it and they shouldn't be given the same way. It depends on how well-written it is and how persuasive it is. You have to take it on mm-hmm. its own merits, which is, of course, not possible if you can't read it. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, it's such an asymmetry of information between parties, depending on their resources. And it's something like, what is it? Klockner 1 and 2 are not published and people are referencing it and no one has access to the... And which, where, which publication are you referencing when you do reference an unpublished award? And it, it does get a bit messy, but... Um, I think we digress. I think that the case, I I agree with that. I think it's such an interesting topic to explore for another episode is the, are all cases created equal? Mm. Very good. That was not my intention, but I'm happy. That's where we ended up. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the end, what's the end conclusion here, Joel? Do you think we should rename our treaty, like not treaty, commercial arbitration cases as well, or? I mean, what the, do you whole, think? the whole setup is a joke. I understand that, that it's impossible. I just think it would be inspiring. And I, I would implore us to be a bit more creative in the way we talk about and think about cases. I don't think Kluckner 1 or 2, Mikula 1 or 2, is, is a satisfying way of talking about cases. And I, I will, my, personally, I will do a better job in trying to talk about cases differently. <laughs> you know what's the worst? Swiss court cases with like X and Y and A and B. Oh my oh, gosh, and slashes. Yes. Oh, yeah. and then you're just like i mean what am i even referencing here i have no idea but is that relevant <laughs> it's uh I, it's like as a and b a went to, it's like oh god i can't even explain this properly without sounding like some analog typewriter <laughs> oh, that's a yeah good point. In, in my experience i think most of my cases would be summarized by show me the money <laughs> And show me the money, number one. Show me the money, number two. Why were you late? Why were you late, number two? Why, Why? delay and disruption? Yeah. <laughs> COVID one. You kick me 000. out. You kick me out. They kick me out. The allegation of you kicking me out. I took my stuff. One, two, yeah. three, four. Exactly. <laughs> Save the planet. <laughs> Yeah. Save the planet number one. I think we could make I think we could make a fun uh, <laughs> a fun little chart out of this. That would be fun. We could, we could, yeah. Agree to said so. So I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew I can count on you guys. We will be publishing a PDF with all our arbitral awards in investment arbitration history with yes. Sadia and Brian's renaming them. I would love that. you guys rename them. Send us send us your funniest uh rebranding yeah. of cases that would be that's a, an appeal that we can make to you guys yeah perfect we'll, we'll the, arbitration, the arbitration station at gmail.com or the arb station on twitter yeah yeah that's a good call and also action. i hope i'm not gonna get i i realize now that i said the commercial arbitration cases are not interesting that's not i take that back 
I take that back. I just couldn't <laughs> think of one right now, guys. Please, I can already hear people like but it's, being really it's, mad at me. It's rare that they that. refer to in subsequent cases as authority that, that we can say compared mm-hmm. to treaty cases. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also for the reason you mentioned, which, which, you know, they're not as accessible also, you know, mm-hmm. commercial arbitration is, is uh, a lot of it is confidential. All right, guys. Thank you for this. See you soon. Thank, Thank you, you, Jill. That was really entertaining. Thanks. Thanks.